one. Welcome back to the Ryan Turbity Show with Second Captains this morning. It's a bank holiday Monday, so I'm going to guess you're probably listening to this in a fairly chilled out mood, taking advantage of the day off. But if anyone deserves to have their feet up today, it's our next guest. Earlier this month, Catherine Switzer ran one of the world's great long distance races, the Boston Marathon, 50 years on from her debut in the event. Back in 1967, she became the first woman to officially enter and finish the race, overcoming some fairly heavy opposition and forever changing the perception of women's physical abilities. Catherine Switzer, welcome to the show. Wonderful, Owen. Wonderful to be here. Honestly, I don't have my feet up, but uh, my head <laughs> is still in the clouds after this race. It was fabulous. I'd imagine so. And I should have also mentioned that you ran it in a more than respectable time of four hours, 44 minutes and 31 seconds. So you enjoyed the day. I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I was uh, the training had gone really well, but um, I was exhausted uh, at the start because there was so much media interest in what was happening. I mean, one day, you know, a couple of days before Boston, for instance, I did 22 interviews. It was just unbelievable. But, you know, we really are very anxious for that media because we're trying to pass the torch on to the next 50 years. So this was a look back at 50 years and a look forward at 50 years. And we want everybody to be aware of the important changes we need to make still with women in the world. And uh, actually then to to run um, well, I mean, 444 is not really excellent, although it's a Boston qualifier by 11 minutes for a 70-year-old, I stopped eight times on the course to do interviews, if you can imagine. And I walked every water station. So um, I had this harbored fantasy that that perhaps I could run it actually faster than I did when I was 20, which was four hours, 20 minutes. So who knows? It might still be in there, Owen, and I'm going to go for it in another race. <laughs> yeah, fair play. Well, that's something I was I wanted to ask you at some point. So you're, you're planning to do more, which is good. Well, you mentioned the amount of media interest there was in you running that race again, Catherine. Was it an emotional kind of a day for you? Were you, were you feeding off the crowds there? It was exceptionally emotional. Um, and it's interesting physiologically. First, I think sometimes when you go into a race and you're wound up as tight as a clock, like I was, um, the, the run relieves that stress and breaks it. And so you relax and you get into just the running itself, which is beautiful and rhythmic. But the crowd, oh, my God, oh, and it was sensational. There were a million people on the course. It turned out to be a warmish spring day. Um, one of the first after a very bleak um, uh, winter and early, late in spring in the in the northeast United States. So everybody was out. It seemed that every hundred people or so of that million were had a sign that said "Go, Catherine," and and they were just screaming. It was. Really, really fantastic. Um, such a contrast to 50 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, did the memories, did, were, there, were there memories floating back to you as you ran the course again of the race, of the incident 50 years ago? Yeah, definitely. Um, don't forget, my last Boston Marathon run on the course actually was 1976, probably before most of your, your listeners are even born. I'd run Boston eight times, but of course the seminal race was the first in 1967 when the official jumped off the press bus and ran down the street after me and attacked me and tried to throw me out of the race and rip off my bib numbers, which were numbers 261. We'll get to that in a minute. And, and that was a very traumatic experience for a girl who was running her first big race. I was only 20. Um, made the decision then uh, to finish the race no matter what, and I did. Um, but it was such a cold, bleak day in 67, and there were hardly any spectators. And some were nice to me. They cheered me. But uh, in 67, there were plenty of them who really shouted at me to go home to make dinner for my husband in the kitchen. And and um, the, the more abuse I got, <laughs> the, the better I felt, if you see what I mean, the more <laughs> determined I was. And 
to have that contrast with to this year, which was just kind of buoyed and floating and feeling fit and healthy and having everybody cheering was just absolutely sensational. Well, what was the attitude? What were the attitudes that needed changing towards women running marathons in 1967? Was it that you shouldn't be running that sort of distance or that you couldn't run a marathon? First of all, society in general perceived women athletes as um, mannish or that they would turn into a man or get masculine attributes if if they um, did anything arduous. Okay, and, you know, big legs, hair on your chest. And certainly the biggest myth was that your uterus was going to fall out. You'd never be able to have children. And this was a very dangerous thing for women to do. Well, of course, it's nonsense. We know that women actually have more endurance and stamina than men, and that, in fact, childbirth is one reason why we have this extra endurance and stamina, and also a fat supply. All your listeners there who want to lose five pounds, don't worry about it. That fat's a very good fuel resource, so rejoice in that and start running. Anyway, so that was the prevailing notion there that, that also it was really kind of unacceptable well, totally unacceptable, to step into what was considered a male domain. And the marathon in particular was considered the most arduous, sort of mythic, heroic distance. And and to have a woman do it was somehow um, humbling to, to men's perception of themselves out there. Now, that was not true among male marathoners, who were really, really welcoming to me. And in fact, um, Running is a very unusual sport in that it is almost gender-free. You know, we all run, we run together, we support each other. It's not about being male and female, it's about being runners, um, or joggers even, and we all applaud each other. So that was the perception, however, and even my coach um, didn't believe a woman anywhere at any time could run a marathon, and that's what propelled me to Boston in 67. Because during practice, I told him that I would like to run the Boston Marathon. He had run it 15 times and regaled me with stories about it. And I was so entranced with the idea that I said I wanted to run it. And he said, a woman can't. Women are too weak and too fragile. You're going to break down. And I said, but I'm running 10 miles a night with you. What are you talking about? And he said, but 10 is not 26. So he finally said if I showed him in practice, he would take me to Boston. And indeed, the day we ran our 26 miles in practice, I said, let's do another five miles, making sure we could absolutely finish. And we ran 31 miles and he fainted at the end of the workout. So he was so impressed with my capability that he was very proud of me and helped me register for the race. So the issue also in Boston 67 was not just that I was female, but that I had actually entered the race, which they said was against the rules. And these rules, of course, were never printed anywhere because they were only tradition because they didn't believe women could do that and and wouldn't be welcome anyway if they did or women themselves wouldn't want to run. So it effectively called into question not only the mythic, mythological kind of attitudes against women, but it called into issue the exclusion of women from events that are free and open in the public. So um, it was it was a seminal moment. It, we weren't to realize that so much at the time, but within a few hours after the race, I think the world realized it. It was certainly an event that changed my life. That's an interesting phrase you used, that you weren't necessarily aware of it at the time. I, I Before, when you decided you wanted to run this marathon, you talk about some of the hoops that have to be jumped through there. Were you consciously taking a stand, or were you just an athlete wanting to run a race who happened to be a woman? 
I just I was just a kid who wanted to run the Boston Marathon. And I was there as a reward from my coach. My coach said, I'm really proud of you, but you have to register for the race. It's a serious event. You know, you're a card carrying member of the Athletic Federation and you don't mess around with the rules. And I thought, oh, we can just go up to Boston and jump in this circus, you know, and jump in this free for all run. And um, of course, I knew up in the front of the race, it was very serious. They had the top Olympic athletes there, some of the great legends of running in the world. And I thought, what an honor it is to be able to run on the same course as these guys up front. Um, it was like the last great open amateur competition. You, know, you can't play in the World Cup soccer or, or on the golf links with Tiger Woods. You, 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 but this, the Boston Marathon, seemed to be an open event. So, no, that's, that's what was the deal, is that it was a reward from him. So I knew women could do the distance, and I, so I didn't need to prove that. Um, and, and wearing a number was the thing that had caused the issue. If I, if I had run numberless, I think the, the officials would have shouted at me, but certainly wouldn't have tried to physically eject me from the race. How did you manage to get the number? Well, because I signed um, the entry form, KV Switzer, with my initials. Now, this was not to defraud them, but the fact that I had, al- had been signing my name that way since I was 12. So the forms went in um, as a team from the Syracuse Harriers, a couple of guys from the cross-country team, my boyfriend also, who was not a runner. That's another story. He was an ex-All-American football player, came in handy, um, <laughs> which I'll tell you in a minute. And the entry forms went in, and it was a snowy, sleety morning. We were all in the car, and the co- my coach said, I'm going to pick up our packet because the numbers were together in the team packet. And we'd had our physicals in advance, so the medical certificates were all there. We didn't have to go and take the medical certificate. And it came out to the car, and we pinned on our numbers, and went over, parked the car, and started to warm up together. And the snow was coming down. It was utterly miserable conditions. So the second thing is is that I was in a baggy gray sweatsuit, and from the distance I looked just like one of the guys. We all looked alike out there, warming up. The men, of course, knew that I was a woman, but the officials didn't see. If, if it had been a warm day and I'd been in my cute shorts and top, probably the officials would have seen me at the start line. Well, so they, another coincidence. Yeah, they may not have seen you at the start line, but as you say, they did see you at some point early enough in the course. And one man in particular saw you and took great umbrage, Jock Semple, the race director. What exactly happened? I'm looking at the image now, which is just incredible to look at. Maybe you can describe what happened. Yeah. Okay. So the beginning of every race is, you know, a happy time. You're all laughing and joking because, you know, pain is going to come later. And at about a mile and a half, um, the press truck came by us and we're taking pictures off the back of a truck. And we were waving to our mothers on the nightly news when um, all of a sudden I heard footsteps behind me a, a scraping sound of leather shoes, not sh- not the rubber shoes that I was hearing, the bump, 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 bump. It was a scraping sound. I turned really quickly just in time to see this ferocious face right up next to me, screaming at me, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers. And he grabbed me by the shoulders and threw me back and tried to pull off my bib number off the front and had it on the front and the back. And I jumped away from him, but he grabbed me by the shirt and my coach was batting at him, screaming, leave her alone, jock. She's okay. And I thought, my God, does my coach know this maniac? And I didn't even know where he came from or who he was. And I, I did suddenly know he was an official because he had a, on his coat lapel a, um, a ribbon, a blue and gold ribbon that said BAA, Boston Athletic Association. I said, oh, my gosh, is somebody serious? And 
he swatted my coach away and said, you stay out of this, Arnie. My coach was named Arnie. And it turns out I found out that they had run together many years before in Boston because this race director what used to be a very good runner. He was protecting his race, obviously. He thought I was a clown. He thought I had in, interloped it and gotten, as he said, my entry by subterfuge. But anyway, he was after me. Um, mayhem. The cameras were clicking. Everything was happening in, uh, right in front of the press truck. My boyfriend, who was the ex-All-American football player, came running full tilt and hit the official with a so shoulder charge that sent him flying through the air and out of the race instead. And Arnie yelled, my coach yelled, run like hell. <laughs> and it's hilarious in the retelling. Um, and everybody loves the story of the, the, the maiden runner being saved by her gallant boyfriend on the night, you know, the white charger. But it was terrible, actually, at the time. It was really very, very humiliating and quite frightening and uh, embarrassing, you know, in front of the press. And, and, and they all wanted me to quit. And they didn't believe that I was for real. And I had to make the decision, which I made instantly, that I was going to finish this race no matter what. On my hands and my knees, I was going to finish this race because I knew if I didn't, people would say, see, women are always barging into places where they're not welcome and they can't do it anyway. And, and a marathon is really tough. You, you can, anything can happen. You know, it's a diabolical race. You can be in the shape of your life and, and have something that knocks you out of the race completely. And as any marathoner knows, that's part of the allure of it. It's a little like mountain climbing that way. And uh, I couldn't have anything happen to me. I had to finish no matter what, no matter how tired I was or injured or whatever might happen, I had to finish the race. Fortunately, I did. Um, you know, at about 21 miles, I stopped being angry at the official. This guy was an ignorant product of his time that he needed to be convinced. And the only way to convince him was to get other women to run. And the only way to get other women to run was to give them a welcoming, non-intimidating environment and an opportunity to try. Because women themselves were fearful of all the myths and fearful of trying anything arduous or, or exciting and, and um, uh, uh, that required a lot of work. And if I could give them that opportunity, I know that knew that they could feel as empowered and as um, fearless as I felt from running. And I really wanted to do that. So when I finished the race, I felt fabulous. You know, I felt like I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It was really amazing. Again, though, I still didn't know if that this was a big deal. I knew that we had gotten our picture taken, but I had no idea until midnight when we stopped the car on the way home to back to the university that when we saw the newspapers. Um, Boston in those days alone, Boston had seven daily papers and uh, several editions. And in all of the papers, this picture was everywhere. And I knew then it had gone around the world because they were all on UPI and AP in those days. And the wire services were very, very active. Um, it was phenomenal. The story was everywhere. That's a lot to take in, Catherine. And I have to applaud you, first of all, for being able to finish the race in the first place. I've, I've run a few marathons myself extremely slowly. And I, can only, I can't actually imagine what it's like to be physically attacked in front of the, the country's media at the time to, to actually get through that were, th were there moments of doubt for the rest for the rest of the 23 miles whatever it was from from that point on no it, there was only the split second when i was so 
so terrified by what had happened. Yeah, I mean, he came out of the blue. I was really blindsided by it. And as everybody knows, when you're out running and you're lost in your thoughts and all of a sudden you get nearly hit by a car or a dog runs out and nearly bites you, you know, your adrenaline spikes. Um, and that's what had happened to me. And I, there was that split second when I thought, should I quit this? And I said, oh, no, not in a million years. Um, I have to stay in the race. So I went into a trough. And that's the only time I had a little doubt because coming out of that trough of adrenaline, fortunately, it happened to my coach. It happened to all of us. All of us really kind of went, oh, God, we'll never get through this. This is, you know, it was so cold. It was just utterly miserable. And um, then you kind of wake up like you're coming out of anesthesia. And then I started feeling really, really great. And as I said, by the time I finished the race, you know, I had blood coming out of my shoes, um, uh, you know, from the blisters. We all did in those days. But it was that was pretty icky, but um, that was the only thing that hurt. Everything else felt felt really amazing. The amazing thing to me is making a decision like that at twenty. Um, as a, I mean, I'm still a girl, and although I finished the race a grown woman, <laughs> I must say it was a very maturing experience. Uh, I was just very very resolute, and I think I had since I had been running since I was about twelve. You know, I had this sort of sense of empowerment and strength for for many years that running always gave me. The race director went ahead and told the police to pull me out when nobody was looking. And the police said, you know, we're out of this. Forget it. So I had this sort of lingering paranoia. And I was right. You know, I thought maybe I had over-exaggerated that. But that's actually the case. I was also, you have to know, disqualified from the race. We all were. Um, for fraudulent entry, for running with men, for running more than a mile and a half, and for running without a chaperone, um, and not only DQ'd from the race, but also expelled from the athletic federation. So it was a really tough situation, and the tougher it got, the tougher I got. Um, but but I knew I knew the direction, which was create opportunities, become a better athlete. Um, we organized. The women organized, naturally. Women are good at that. It took us five years, but we got women official in Boston in 1972. I could finally become an athlete. I, I hunkered down, trained my brains out, and improved my time from 4.20 to 2 hours 51, which I did in 1975, which laid a lot of skeptics and critics to rest, which I was very, very pleased with. But it only reinforced my feeling that uh, there are millions of women out there who had incredible opportunities, I mean, incredible talent if they only had the opportunities. And from that, I had um, the vision to write a, a very big business proposal. It's time to Avon Cosmetics, the largest cosmetics company in the world. And together with them, over the course of the next 20 years, organized um, 400 races in 27 countries for over a million women. And that led to getting the women's marathon into the Olympic Games in 1984. So I, I, I love how the worst things in your life can become the best things in your life. And I must tell you, every day I thank Jock Semple for attacking me in the Boston Marathon because as bad as it was, he gave me a vision for the future. That's a vision. Yeah, it's an incredible way to look at it. It's a vision, Catherine, that you've carried through to this day. You, you mentioned briefly the, this 261 Fearless, which is a foundation that you've set up and you had a big group of runners running with you in 2017. Is this part of the same thing that you talked about there back in the 60s and 70s? This is still an attempt for you to by you to help to empower women around the world, really. We're not just talking about being an active sports person, but em empower them in other ways. 
Yes. Oh, and I'm so glad you know you brought that up, and I, I was going to bring that up as as the final thing. You think you think that you know your legacy maybe is getting the women's marathon in the Olympic Games, and that that to me was uh, significant, hugely significant, changed the landscape. But just a few years ago, suddenly that bib number of mine two six one became a number meaning fearless in the face of adversity. And we were getting hundreds of letters from, from men and women, um, and, and they were tattooing it on themselves, for heaven's sakes, not just wearing it, they were tattooing it. And I said, we've got it, we gotta figure this out, what does this mean? Well, what we did is we formed nonprofit uh, foundation, 261 Fearless, which uses running as the vehicle to empower women around the world. We started a global series of clubs. Community clubs are really, really essential so women can get the direct touch in a non-intimidating environment uh, and, and, and run or walk with other women. And, and, and just find they're fearless because, as I said, running is very, very transformational. And when we can do that from community to community, whether it's in Ireland or in Afghanistan or Ohio in the United States, we are changing these women's lives. Most of the women, I'm sorry to say, in the world right now still live in a fearful situation. And it's, it's difficult to reach many of them because they need the opportunity to experience an alternative to what they live. They need to understand that they can control their own lives, their own destinies, that they can become empowered. And as simple as it sounds, putting one foot in front of the other works. We've seen it work everywhere. Look at Ethiopia, look at Kenya, what the women runners are doing there. It's fantastic. So with a series of, of 261 community clubs, um, with events, with a communications platform, we can get these women, to, and they are already talking to each other through 261fearless.org. And we encourage everybody listening to join us to start a club in your own area. We have, we will show you how to do it to create a non-judgmental community of women. That's the key thing, and uh, we will, we will rock it. Um, we've done it before. We'll do it again. You're talking, Catherine, about countries in some cases maybe where uh, there have been limited opportunities for women up up until now. Absolutely. Oh, and there are countries in the world who don't allow their their women to go out of the house or to drive a car or to get an education or carry a passport, and these women have really no hope and. If they can talk to other women through the internet or they can learn to put one foot in front of the other through a community-based running club, whether that's in their house or virtually, they will know they're not alone out there. You said at the very top of our chat here that you have got another race in your sights. I would have thought a lot of people would have forgiven you for maybe resting for a few weeks or months. What are you up to? <laughs> well, you know, I, as I told you on, in Boston, I, I did eight interviews on the, on the run and I walked every water station. So I'm actually in better shape than I imagined. The training has, has gone well. So let's never, never waste your training. Um, I suddenly realized, you know, even though I have won the New York City Marathon in 1974, I never got to run through the streets of New York. That's back when the race used to be four laps of Central Park. So I've decided I'm going to run the New York City Marathon next November um, with, a, with a few friends and go, go out on the streets and really celebrate and see, see, what's, see what's there. Well, we'll watch out for you, Catherine, and we wish you the best of luck. It's been uh, amazing listening to you, chatting to us today. I'm sure everyone's enjoyed it. Thanks so much for taking the time. Wonderful, Owen, and you, you guys take care. Thanks for thinking of me and having me.